Matters of Mortology, a novella written and read by T.M. Camp. Epigraph For every undertaker, there comes a day when they discover that there's more to caring for the dead than the ritual preparation of cold, lifeless flesh. It is on this day, and for some this day arrives early in their career, while others must wait years before they see it, that he will find that all of his training, discipline, and craft are impotent. The boundary between life and death is controlled by ritual as much as a mountain range holds itself accountable to politics. And that is from The Practical Guide for Morticians by Charles L. Dallin, the 1658 edition. Chapter 1 Epigraph In those more restrictive times, women were not permitted membership in the guild. Their singular gift, the ability to conceive, to serve as a vessel by which souls come into this world, was seen as too precious to risk. In those frontier days when infant mortality hovered at 50%, life was so precious, so mortally vulnerable, that any exposure to the other side, to the dead or those who cared for them, was considered dangerous and forbidden. This was not mere superstition. It was the central pillar of the community and culture, to say nothing of our creed. And that is from A Comprehensive Contemporary History of Death by Philip Howard. There are few trees in my country. The low rolling hills of the region are shrouded in tall pale grass. At night, thick mists seep into the valleys spreading out between the high hills to smear the evening with a damp grayness. I live outside the village in my family's ancestral home. The house sits, squat and massive, on the rise of a high hill at the end of a lonely, rutted lane that bears our name. The house was built from pale gray stone that has gone dark over the years, like something from a gothic novel. Three stories tall it stands, crowned with a broad slate roof. My grandfather's grandfather built this house the year the village was founded, the year my family received our charter from the guild. People bring me their dead. By heritage, training, and perhaps even inclination, I am an undertaker. It is the family tradition, profession and homestead passed on from father to son, down through the generations. I mention my family, but I am not married nor have children. At my age, it is not likely that the former condition will be corrected in time to accomplish the latter. Gazing down the short stretch of road ahead of me in this life, I hobble towards a day when this heritage and home will be abandoned, forgotten and I despair for myself and the family I have betrayed. Such was not always the case. Looking back, the enthusiasm I enjoyed in the early days of my service baffles me even now. With the passing of my father, I came into my own and embraced the full weight of the office with a conviction that served me well in so much as it provided some measure of relief from the sorrow I felt over his passing to say nothing of the pain of my own exile as I shouldered his mantle 
and thereby accepted a life in service to the dead, forever separated from the living. I had already said goodbye to my mother and sister when I began my apprenticeship five years prior, of course, but it wasn't until the formal acceptance of my commission that, well, suffice it to say that with my father gone, I was truly alone for the first time in my life. The night after I buried him, I wandered through the empty rooms of the manor, my manor, realizing for the first time how distant the muffled voices and footfalls sounded from the floors above. Separated by tradition and heritage, I could not and would not ever ascend the stairs to comfort my mother in her grief. Death took her son and husband both. Like my father, I do not regret this, but I sometimes dreamt of her, even long after she too was gone. Those were more traditional and, in many ways, simpler times. The controversies that fractured the guild beyond repair in recent years were decades away from conception when I came into my full office. As such, I started my life of service free from schism or debate. Neither would distract me from matters of mortology. Free from the chaos of the more fashionable causes of these modern times, my younger self let the natural order shape my life and service. Spring and summer brought new life into the world, while the cold months were traditionally busy ones for my caste, when Mother Death would walk in her orchards, collecting the windfall of winter. Of course, this was long before the ambitions and advances of modern medicine erected that arrogant pharmaceutical fence to keep her out. However, there was a time, early in my years of service, I will not, as so many of my contemporaries do, refer to it as my career. There was a time when I find myself in circumstances which forced me to question these natural rhythms, to doubt even my own faith in the boundaries of life and death itself. I'm writing of the past, of course, just another old man wandering near the boundary of this life, looking back. I'm writing of that time when I lost my faith. There's a broad deck that runs around the back of my house, hanging out like a balcony over the graveyard. In my younger years, it was often my habit to sit there in the evenings and smoke a cigarette or two while my dinner was being prepared by my sister in her rooms above. I'd watch as the pale mist slowly crept in to fill the valley and surrounding countryside parting from time to time to reveal the faint flicker of light from a neighboring homestead or the spectral outline of a headstone or monument in the yard below. Then the mist would slide back into place and leave me with nothing to ponder but the rolling pale tendrils twining and rolling under the faint stars above. I have heard them say that starlight is but a memorial of a star long since faded and gone, just another monument left out for the elements to scour, obscure, and ultimately consume. We did not think so then. In my time, the stars were mysterious, yet constant and reliable. But now science has even taken the stars from us. One evening, earlier in my career, I stood on the deck and filled the air with my flavored smoke cinnamon and cloves made special for me in the village. 
and I felt the late winter chill creep down my throat and into my lungs, drawing tight fingers across my chest. Winter might be on its way out, but she was not going to leave without a fight. It had been a long season, and though the snows had melted weeks earlier, harsh winter and burgeoning spring still battled over control of this soggy countryside. Winter is death's dominion, and this past season had kept her and me busier than any time I could recall to my memory. As is so often the case when my work is hectic, I found myself unable to sleep. The workload was such that I could only catch a few hours each night. Death had undone so many. And what sleep I managed to obtain was a pale, fitful imitation of true cleansing rest. Standing and smoking at the back of my home, I looked forward to the coming spring. The local mortality had already begun to taper off, and it would soon be the midwives who found their sleep interrupted. And death perhaps offended by the wealth of life that springs shared with the world. Death had a tendency to sulk during the warmer seasons, no doubt biding her time, when winter would come once more. For my part, the spring held little for me but some renovations to the house, a few incidental maintenance projects in the yard. Apart from these things, I looked forward to a season of rest, of solitude, from behind me, I heard the familiar sound of the dumbwaiter being lowered inside the house. Stubbing the cigarette out, I went back inside to where my dinner was waiting for me. As I ate, I listened to my sister's footsteps passing back and forth across the floor above as she prepared her breakfast. It had been nearly ten years since I had assumed my apprenticeship, ten years since I had last seen her face or spoken with her. It was a hard and lonely life, but she bore it well. Although it might have been a vanity on my part, I often felt that she gave her own service to me with an honor and pride not dissimilar to my own. Not that she could easily acknowledge this pride. Since the time that I had assumed our father's office, she had been forbidden to speak my name for fear of defilement or corruption. And should another speak my name aloud in her presence, she was bound by tradition to ignore the reference and acknowledge mention only of your brother or your mother's son. How times have changed. Although she did not speak of me nor hear me spoken of, at least not directly, and since she was forbidden to speak to me herself, the dumbwaiter in our home served as our only formal channel of communication specifically through the handwritten notes which we sent back and forth at mealtimes or on special occasions, or when she felt it necessary to inform me of a specific piece of news or gossip that she had brought back from the village. After nearly a decade of not hearing my name, no, nor speaking it herself, I suppose that it was possible that she might have forgotten it altogether due to misuse, and, it occurs to me now, she might have even forgotten her own name as well. Of course, I had not forgotten, although I was permitted to speak her name only over her grave, only once she had passed the boundaries of this world and was beyond the corruption of the dead or those who served them. No, I had not forgotten her name. As an undertaker, no name is denied me. 
I shall speak them all in the end. My dinner finished, I set the empty dishes inside the dumbwaiter and went into my study to settle back in front of the fire with a book, as was my custom in the evenings. Above, I could hear my sister going about her nightly chores. The evening wore on and the fire burned low, filling the room with flickering shadows. I had drifted off when a sound from the upper floors of my house drew me out of my dozing. My sister, leaving for her weekly visit to the village. Typically speaking, and seasonal fluctuations notwithstanding, I worked from dawn until dusk, while my sister, on the other hand, observed an opposite schedule. All of this is, of course, to ensure that she remained protected from accidental exposure to me or my office. In their kindness, the shopkeepers and merchants of our village stayed open late to serve her. I have heard that in these modern times, families of my caste are more inclined to set aside the old traditions and routines in favor of convenience. I do not begrudge them their lapses, for they are minor notes in the larger heresies that have risen in these later days. How times have changed. Even so, I do not blame them. I understand the sacrifice that such a separation imposes on everyone in a household. I understand too well the late-night ache, that loneliness that deepens with the passing hours. So often my own evenings were scored by the dull edge of insomnia, the sleepless time folding back on itself while I paced the floors and stared into the silent embers of my hearth. Protected as she was, my sister was not safe from my restless nights. She wrote numerous notes to me on the subject, complaining that she could not stand to hear my vexed footfalls wandering through the lower floors of, she reminded me, our shared home. Despite my efforts, pharmaceutical and otherwise, to curtail these episodes, they would invariably return, and I would once again wander the sleepless rooms and hallways. Fortunately, winter was nearing its end, and I was hopeful that the milder season and workload would take the edge off my insomnia as well. But death, I was to find out, would not be on holiday this year. My nights would prove to be far more restless and vexed than ever before. On the cusp of that time, unknowing, I looked up from my book to see the fire had burned low. I rose and threw an armful of dried flowers onto the embers, settling back into my chair once more. My book soon proved stale, and I was dozing my way through unhappy, fretful dreams. Hours later, I woke to find the fire burned down to nothing. Not even embers remained in the grate. The room was cold, and a few familiar spirits flitted listlessly around the lifeless coals. I turned drowsily in my chair, falling back into sleep, tipping face first into a nightmare waiting there for me. I wandered barefoot through a vast field of bones, hollow eyes staring up at me, empty and accusing. Nightmares are commonplace in my profession. It's only natural. If there is one lesson I have learned from my many years of service, it is this. Death leaves no one untouched.
Chapter 2 Epigraph The bodies of the newly dead are not debris nor remnant, nor are they entirely icon or essence. They are, rather, changelings, incubates, hatchlings of a new reality. It is wise to treat such new things tenderly, carefully, and with honor. And that is from The Undertaking by Thomas Lynch. I have always awakened with the sun. I'm never able to sleep past dawn, nor is it my custom to eat breakfast. Instead, I rise and dress quickly so that I might have more time to savor my morning stroll down the hill to the yard below. Over the years, I and my predecessors have worn a bare path through the tall grass, each son tracing daily over his father's steps, performing the same tasks, fulfilling the same responsibilities, serving the same God. Few mornings go by even now when I walk that path without thinking of my own father. In the last years of his service, just prior to his death, my father spoke more and more often of our craft, not of the usual points of instruction, the minutia of our labors. No, instead he spoke more and more of the grand scope of our efforts, the spiritual, metaphysical, and cultural resonance of our work. He became a philosopher, a visionary, perhaps even a mystic. Even then, before the faintest hint of what was to come, even then he anticipated the coming schism the fierce machines of debate that tore our guild apart in recent years. He saw and predicted it all. And, like the magician in the parable, he grieved over the future he'd seen. He was very wise. I miss him every day. I miss him still. A study was conducted. He told me one afternoon during our last year together while we worked to prepare a client for burial. A study of children in a schoolyard. How they played together. How they behaved when their teachers were watching. And when they were not. There was a large fence that ran around the perimeter of the schoolyard. And the children ran and played freely throughout, exploring and enjoying their world right up to the boundary. From time to time, one of the children would venture to climb over the fence, either out of rebellion or following their own sense of adventure. The child would be corrected accordingly, and play would continue as before. After a few months, the children arrived at school one day to find that their fence had been removed. My father paused to wipe the sweat from his eyes. We'd been working all afternoon, deeply engrossed in the rites of preparation perhaps the most difficult phase of an undertaker's work, given the physical and emotional effort needed to work with cold, lifeless flesh. Mopping his brow, he gestured for me to hand him a long, thin, taming knife so rarely used today, and continued his work and story. Once the fence was gone, the children no longer played as before. Instead of roaming freely, they huddled together in small groups clustered at the center of the playground, far away from the undefined, unknown boundary. After observing and interviewing the children, the researchers concluded that, with the fence gone, the playground had become a place of uncertainty, 
the children were afraid to stray too far, lest they inadvertently cross the unseen boundary. So they huddled together, whispering and afraid even to play where they knew it must be safe. He handed the knife back to me, and I wiped it carefully on my apron in the over-and-under ritual gesture I had learned at school. He nodded approvingly. This is what happens when boundaries are removed. Freedom is stifled, and we become slaves to fear. And with that, he made the sign of the great god Terminus and gestured for me to hand him a spool of wire. I miss him still. And, writing these words, I find the true start to my story. Not with a dry catalogue of my office or family heritage, not in the self-pitying superiority of an old man waving tradition at his younger colleagues. No, my story begins in the graveyard, winter still lingering on as I walk down the hill with memories of my father haunting me as the rising sun bruised the sky. As I recall, there was a cold wind that rasped through the high grass, as chill and unpleasant as any of my memories are to me now. At the halfway point between the house and the graveyard, where the slope of the hill finally levels out, there stands the mason shack. Early in my time of service, in the time that I write of, the mason was the only companion in an otherwise truly solitary occupation. In addition to attending to the physical upkeep of the yard itself, the mason's main labor is spent providing headstones and monuments for the dead. My own mason was a good fellow, decent, hard-working despite his years. He had come to our family in my father's first year of service, long before my sister and I were born. Now he had perhaps only a few years of service left before retirement. Masons, unlike my caste, do not work until they pass beyond the boundary of this life. Rather, they remain in service until their health or age dictates otherwise. The nature of their labor and exposure to the elements makes them sometimes subject to painful arthritic tremors, rendering their tools unwieldy in their hands, and it is thus, more often than not, that their craft is lost. Our mason was not yet at this point but it was apparent to me that retirement was imminent. I knew he could feel its cold grasp on him, chiseling away more of his strength with each passing day. It was my custom in the mornings to rap on his door as I passed the small stone mason shack, continuing on down to the yard. Once he'd risen and donned the coveralls and scarf he wore in any weather, rain or shine, mason would trundle along after, with his wheelbarrow, down the path, bringing the various tools we might need for the day's labor. That long-ago morning, however, while I was yet halfway down the hill, I was surprised to see that he was outside, slumped on the little stone stoop outside his shack's door, his head hung low, his arms cradling something close to his chest. Even from a distance, his sobs reached me. He'd found her in the graveyard, long before dawn, when he was making his final rounds before turning in. At first glance, he'd thought her a memorial banner, forgotten after one of the recent funerals, an old garland gone dry and brown. But as he drew closer, his old eyes filled with recognition and tears 
at the sight of her sprawled limply across a gravestone, casually flung there, her neck broken, rudely gutted from throat to haunches. He said her name once, there in the shallow night, and then he took her in his arms and headed home, where I was to find him a few hours later, sitting there, stroking her fur gently, whispering to her some secret sorrow that my ear strained to hear. His eyes met mine as I approached. It's a cruel thing to lose her this way, I can tell you, sir. His voice shook and he looked away. Murmuring my sympathies, I released him from his service for the day and continued on towards the yard in a much more sober frame of mind. I picked through the plots, gathering up any flowers that had begun to wither. Nothing will distress a mourner more than to find dead flowers on the grave that they came to visit. It was rare for me to work alone. Usually the morning chores were punctuated with Mason's chatter. Although I was used to tuning him out as I worked, the early silence unsettled me. I kept seeing his eyes, those old eyes clouded with rheum and sadness. I had often thought his life of solitude a somewhat more compact analog of my own, disagreed with him, ran contrary to his nature and temperament. He seemed to revel in conversation and companionship, almost starving for it in a desperate sort of way. My father once told me that a few years after Mason's arrival, he petitioned for permission to obtain a dog, ostensibly to serve as an evening sentry in the yard. My father, reading the deep loneliness in the man's eyes, offered his agreement and approval, and apparently it did the trick. Mason's vigor improved with the arrival of the animal. His days and nights were brighter for the company. He called her his lady, and she trotted behind him faithfully as he performed his duties, ever attentive to his rambling, one-sided conversations. And now she is gone, I thought to myself as I filled my arms with dead flowers. The poor creature had been unfortunate prey to some winter-starved animal or other. While it's rare for bees to find their way into my yard, it is not unknown. During the first year that my father took up his office, the yard was beset by a vast parliament of rooks that lingered for three days and nights. They swarmed over the graves, perching on the headstones, shattering the air with their vulgar cries until, one morning, they were gone as though they had never been. No sign remained of them, save for the vague artistry of the guano-splattered monuments. In their absence, my father told me, the silence was uncomfortable, disturbing. And we've even seen the occasional wolf, that outcast child of hazard, prowling about in lean times. After a few days, they move on in search of bones not so dry and not so old as ours. No doubt Lady had met her savage end at the teeth of such a beast. Lost in thought, it took me some time to realize that I had gathered a huge pile of dried flowers, far more than usual. On an ordinary day, I might collect an armful or two as fuel for my fireplace, yet on that day I found dead flowers waiting for me at nearly every grave. All of the flowers and wreaths had withered as though dried out in the summer sun. 
only a few graves here and there, those decorated with the white moly, remained untouched by the blight. As I set another armful on top of the knee-high heap of flowers, I heard Mason shuffling up behind me. His cap was off and his eyes darted away from my feet to my face and then back again, his features overcome with a mixture of shame and sadness. I told him that he needn't bother with work today if he didn't feel up to it. He begged my pardon, saying, I don't particularly feel like anything but working today, really. He shuffled his feet and dug one hand into a pocket, producing three small coins. Before I could protest, he thrust the money at me. Sir, I would like, if at all possible, to buy your service today. It would do my lady a great honor if you gave her your attentions. She was too good a friend to me to just let her rot in a hole where what had done her in might come back and dig her up again. I was overcome, and misreading my silence, Mason dropped his head. I apologize, sir. I didn't mean the insult. I know she's just a dog, and dogs is for holes. Forgive my presuming too much. He shook his head and turned to shuffle off. I think I might take today for myself after all, since you offered. I caught his arm, calling him a dear fellow, and I told him that I would be honored to attend to his lady. He blinked at me, eyes awash with grateful tears. It's not beneath you, sir. I assured him that it would be beneath me to turn my back on such a faithful servant. He dug in his pocket once more, but I waved him off. The payment was unnecessary. He grunted, reluctant to give up, insistent that I take payment. It'll make things proper, sir, for her. Finding that I could not refuse him without insulting him, I accepted his coins. God only knew how long he'd been saving them. More likely than not, they'd been set aside to pay for his own burial. The transaction reluctantly completed, he and I went back into his shack to gather the equipment we would need. The pile of dried flowers remained forgotten back in the yard. Chapter 3 Epigraph An entire mythology has grown up around the process of dying. Like most mythologies, it is based on the inborn psychological need that all humankind shares. The mythologies of death are meant to combat fear on the one hand and its opposite, wishes, on the other. And that is from How We Die by Sherwin B. Newland. The mason's shack was made up of a single room dominated by the large slab-topped table at the center, upon which the dead are laid. On the walls, tools of preparation are hung within easy reach. Aprons, blades, saws, wires, scoops, and the like. In cupboards below the table are stored the various fluids and wrappings of preservation, some prophylactic, some treated with fragrant and exotic spices. In those same cupboards you will find the tools of restoration, cosmetics, sutures, and even limited prosthetics. It is rare when Mother Death leaves her children in a state comely to the eyes of mourners. 
At the start and finish of each preparation, I wash my hands in the cast-iron sink, a marriage of symbolism and utility that my contemporary colleagues fail to value or observe. The only light in the room comes from a small skylight set into the roof above. This prevents us from allowing our work to stretch into the evening, regardless of how busy the season. Day or night, no light ever burns in the mason shack for fear of attracting corpse candles, like moths. They are mischievous, and many an apprentice working late by candlelight has been spooked by their pranks. This practice remains one of the few old superstitions from my generation which lingers on in modern times, though I suspect that the evening limit to the workday has more to do now with the younger generation's desire to socialize, so scandalous in my time rather than sincere spiritual considerations. After all, the shack is the mason's workplace as well as his dwelling. The sink, his bath, the slab, his pallet, his is a meager life shared with the dead. Once the rites of preparation and restoration are complete, the casket is introduced to serve as the container of the corpse in this world, as well as the soul's transport across the boundary to the next. Once again, an integration of symbol and utility both in this world and the one beyond. Traditionally, the coffin is provided by the family and filled with mementos of the deceased. Outside of our caste, it is a common misconception that my kind appropriate these cherished items as gratuities do our office. While I cannot speak for my brothers in the dismal trade, I can only assure you that my father trained me to treat these mementos as sacred objects holy and untouchable. As their owner passes, so too they go with him. Graveside, the following collect is offered in conjunction with the rites of commitment. Depart, O soul, out of this world. In the name of God, Terminus, who drew the boundaries of your life and death. In the name of God, Terminus, who gathers you to himself. In the name of God, Terminus, who holds out his gentle hand to guide your passage. May your rest be found in peace and your dwelling within the walls of joy. As the casket is lowered, the gathered mourners offer this prayer. Into your all-encompassing arms, O God, we commend your servant. Guide them, O Lord, across this boundary and through the shadow. Hold back the unseen dread with your mighty hand and grant this one safe passage. As you walk the boundaries, Lord, do not forget we who wait within. In all things, around all things, and beyond all things. Amen. It is at this point in the rites when testimonies, familial and familiar, are offered. Special messages or farewells from female relatives or spouses are delivered by the eldest male relative present. In those times, women could not even observe the period of remembrance and mourn those who had passed. I do not say these things to show my approval of them. I realize that the world has moved on. And yet, as a product of my time and the inheritor of the traditions of that previous generation, I accepted and still accept all freedom available within those boundaries and all restraint as well. But yes, the world has moved on. 
Women, I am told, may speak for the dead now. Once the testimonies are offered and the time of remembrance has begun, the grave is sealed and the marker is placed upon it. Of course, if a family or deceased is not of the faith, they may specify their own rites for preparation and committal. Although I will not perform these as I am not permitted to homage or importune a false god. In such cases, these pagan ceremonies are performed by a suitable alternative, either a priest or observant family member. In the box so carefully crafted by her loving master, Lady was surrounded by meager trappings from her life. A tin bowl, the wool blanket, a wire brush. Each of these Mason touched briefly under her nose before laying the object beside her. Then we bore her to the grave he had prepared, where we laid her to rest. He stood there, cap in hand, as I pronounced the rites. Once the ceremony was finished, I completed my rounds in the yard, leaving him to offer her any private testimonials he could manage through his sobs. Feeling the flush of shame and guilt for it, I wondered how I would get through my day with the cloud of his sorrow hanging over me. I needn't have worried. There were other distractions waiting for me that day. Chapter 4 Epigraph By foreign hands thy dying eyes were closed. By foreign hands thy decent limbs composed. By foreign hands thy humble grave adorned. By strangers honored and by strangers mourned. And that is from A Prologue for Addison's Cato by Alexander Pope. The grave gaped wide beneath me, a spray of dried flowers hanging limply from my hand. Flat, dull rage filled me at the sight of such desecration. He had been so young when they brought him to me, one of those rare times when death leaved behind a trace of life's bloom to mock those who mourn. They were foreigners, his family, from the far east, and only recently settled in this land. A few seasons prior, they had entombed themselves in a large manor on the outskirts of the village, living nearly as remote as myself. They rarely visited town or sought the company of others. Yet, when their boy passed, they brought him to me. He had bad blood, his uncle told me, shaking his head, the aged skin of his neck wrinkling like silk. The boy's mother, past her childbearing years and therefore immune to defilement, stood behind him, little more than a smudge of face behind her veil. I could see the glitter of her eyes through the thick lace and nothing more, and yet even those thrilled me, unaccustomed as I was to contact with women. I am ashamed to say that, reminding myself of my office and heritage, did little to balance out the erratic churning of my blood under that gaze. And her voice. They spoke to each other softly, like birds, cooing words passed from mouth to ear, gentle voices speaking a language I would never know. And yet I still hear it sometimes as I drift off to sleep in my lonely manner. Her voice. A stoic people 
they brought forth no tears. The boy's uncle was a priest of their faith. As their rites and practices were foreign to me, I easily agreed that he should perform the service. Foregoing the usual rites, they brought the child in a carved cedar coffin so fragrant that it nearly overshadowed the lush incense the uncle lit at the outset of his ceremony. Lulled by the priest's atonal chanting, I watched as he enclosed the boy's coffin, the wood dark the color of old blood, and committed him into the hands of unfamiliar gods. Once the final stick of sandalwood had been burnt, and the last wave of gnarled fingers shaped a final mystic sigil in the air above the coffin, the uncle stepped back. Mason then came forward to close the grave, sucking his teeth in suspicious disapproval, his clumsy spade rudely punctuating the elegance of the ceremony. I watched as the two of them walked away through the yard, mother and uncle, each supporting the other. I strained to hear their faint murmurs until the uncomprehending mist swallowed them. Not proper, Mason said, wiping the grime of his hands on the seat of his pants, with their strange smelly gods in their old ways. I didn't answer. For all my tradition, I believe that even strangers deserve the respect of my caste when death comes. None have ever been turned away from my yard. I know that it is more in vogue now to adopt stricter, almost partisan attitudes towards faith, so strange when liberalism reigns over most other issues. And so they create partitions among them, keeping people in their place, even the dead. I did not do so then, and I would not do so now. Such prejudice of office would bring shame upon my family name. What do any of us deserve but a proper death? Bad blood, I said to myself, gazing down on that torn and desecrated grave and feeling the violation to my core. I climbed down to inspect the coffin and assure myself that it was still intact. Whether prank, vandalism, or even theft, this desecration was an immense insult to me and my office. To say nothing of the sheer, outright rudeness towards the dead— the great god Terminus, who set his seal on such places, did not abide such trespass. I returned with regret, rousing Mason from his sorrows so that he might refill the boy's grave. Despite his prejudice, he was profoundly shocked at the vandalism, and I could see that he took it to heart. This, he said to me, this is something that is not done. Plain and simple, you don't do this. I could do nothing but agree, and left him to his work. Chapter 5 Epigraph Vandalism is a natural byproduct of the living and the dead coexisting in such close cohabitation. There are those who believe that the dead return to haunt their former homes long after they have passed on, regardless of whether or not the current residents have extended an invitation. It should come as no surprise, then, when the living sometimes intrude into the domain of the dead. If they can haunt us with impunity, then so might we do the same of them. 
And that is from A Practical Guide for the Death Trade Entrepreneur by Stephen Hubble. The light falls across my desktop in fragments, a shattered rainbow cast from the stained glass window above. On bright days, the room is filled with gorgeous strokes of light casting broad swaths of color across the book-lined walls of my study. My library is extensive, populated by not only my own books, but by all those handed down through the preceding generations. It is an obvious metaphor, I know, but I have often thought that each book stands on its shelf much like the stones in the graveyard below. Well-tended, familiar, each marking the place where a lifetime has been stored. The similarity extends even further, for with the stones they also share a cool perfume of dust and well-tended age. And each book, like each stone, holds a singular personality that I treasure as much as any flesh-and-blood companion. Even now, the titles and authors glint dully at me from the shadows, smiling, winking, enticing, as my life is a solitary one, my books are the only friendly population that my occupation will allow. This room, my study, lies at the center of my house. It is the foundation, the support, and it is the heart of me. It is where I spend my time. And it is where I went to mull things over after I returned home, after I found the vandalism in the yard below. As a child, I spent much of my time poring over my father's books. His tastes were not so broad as my own, limited chiefly to professional journals and technical manuals. Dry though they were, these fascinated me. Yet my earliest memories were not of these, but rather of the broken light cast by that high window. Many an afternoon I spent running my fingers through the scattered puzzle, mattingly insubstantial impossible to restore. Even that familiar, shattered light would not soothe me that day. The desecration of the grave had been immense, the marker tilted askew and the grave torn open as if by animals. But no animal leaves muddy handprints behind. No beast wears boots. Whoever had done this, I decided, had come from the village with the purpose in mind. This was no youthful prank. Nothing like this had ever happened before, no, nor since, neither. Someone came to do this thing, someone from within the boundaries of my community, someone who would, in all likelihood, one day be buried here in my yard. It was unbearable to think on it. They had come, I knew as certain as anything, because the boy was a foreigner. I thought of contacting the authorities. But our scheduled session on the circuit was still four weeks off, and I had no faith in the deductive abilities of the addled postmaster who doubled as our local itinerant deputy. And there was the family to consider. As their traditions were unfamiliar to me, I fretted that perhaps such a situation required special rites to purify what had been desecrated. To inform them of the event, however, was also to admit some lack on my part. Mason was right, after all. It never should have happened. And yet, it had. The choice was clear to me. Despite reputation, despite pride, 
In fact, because of these things, the family must be told. It is my obligation to serve the living as well as the dead. The boy's family had not requested or required my ministrations or comfort in their grief, but they might at least accept my apologies. They must be told, if for no other reason than for the sake of the boy they had buried. My decision made, I set out to deal with this unpleasant errand immediately. I knew I would not sleep well with it camped on the periphery of my conscious mind all night long, so, taking up my stick and shrugging on a heavy coat, I set out walking. The road was rough and scarred from the long winter, the harsh rain and snow. Deep ruts crossed here and there, the tracks of the cartwheels tracing through the networks of roads, connecting each house to the village and with each other. The ones leading to and from my manor were broader, more shallow than the rest. Most animals shun my presence on instinct. Horses will scream and stamp at the sight, even the scent of me and my kind. And so the dead are brought to me on wagons with iron wheels pulled by men. I do not know why the wheels are iron. This was not taught in my schooling. It is a tradition older than my or my father's knowledge, and I have never read of it in my studies. The bitter wind slapped my face as I walked, chapping my lips and drawing them dry. All around, the tall grasses hissed in the wind, the thin tails of a thousand frightened cats protesting my passage. Or so the proverb goes, even nature recognizes death's servant. Now, in the recounting of this story, I must admit that there is a temptation to gift myself with a greater awareness of the situation than that which I possessed at the time. Honesty dictates that I confess that I did not recognize the true nature of what I was facing, not until it was too late. God meant for me to struggle with far worse matters than butchered dogs and desecrated graves. In the end, that struggle would drift across the boundary between the physical and spiritual, and not all of we who fought there made it back across once more. On my way to inform the boy's family of what had occurred, I thought on Mason's lady and the graveyard vandalism, and despite this old man's vanity, I must admit that I did not link the two events in my mind. Now, it would take my friend Burke to point out the patterns to me. It would be he who provided me with, if not salvation, then, at the very least, survival. But I have not told you of Burke yet, nor of his shop and what I learned there. Once more, this old mind overlaps the pages of my story. I shall regain my place and continue. After a time and a distance on the frozen roads, I came to the gate of the house I sought, so stark against the overcast sky. There was a small bundle of fruit hanging from the crossbar of the gate, a mourning custom perhaps from their country. I entered, noting that all of the fruit had been pecked at by birds. Within, their house was surrounded by a second wall of stacked stone, somewhat lower than the outer barrier. I passed along up the lane and went through a second gate, also hung with the nibbled fruit, drained of juice. On the other side of the gate, 
I found myself face to face with a demon. The creature was drawn back as though startled by my appearance, raising one paw in savage shock, body tense and ready to spring. Unthinking, I lashed out with my walking stick, barking a short grunt of surprise and fear. My blow bounced off the statue, of course, that is what it was, and immediately I cast an eye up to the windows of the house, praying that no one had observed my foolishness. After taking a moment to regain our composure, the stone demon and I regarded each other in a more respectful light. And then I continued on up the walkway, passing through a magnificent garden, stunning in its sublimity. Obvious care had been taken with the design, and the order was admirable. Small paths ran off into secluded clearings. Pattered stones chattered quietly in a shallow creek bed. Brassy shadowfish swept along the bottom of rock-lined pools. It was a place of gentle reflection and calm, so much so that I might have dallied a bit in my walk to the front door of the house. I do not often have the opportunity to experience quiet and peace without the presence of death there also, let alone such an elegant environment. And I must admit that I felt no small measure of guilt for bringing more painful news to this household, to see the sorrow redoubled in those veiled eyes and to be the cause of it. I wondered, gazing down into a small pool where fleet shadows swam, how long a woman was obliged to wear the veil of mourning in their tradition. I wondered over the color of her eyes, a momentary indulgence that I regret even now, reminding myself that she had lost her son that she was most likely twice my age and as inaccessible to me as her native land, I turned toward the house. Although an iron bell hung to one side of the door, I knocked. In those times, any musical instrument, even bells, were forbidden to my caste, as it was once believed that their tone summoned whatever spirits might be nearby. Current learned thought has, through controlled experiment, conclusively determined that such is not the case. And so modernity liberates us all from the confinement of another antique superstition, even me, though I still do not care for the sound of bells. After a few moments, the door was opened by the boy's uncle. He nodded in greeting and, before I could offer a word of explanation, gestured me to enter. Closing the door behind me, the uncle led me through a hallway to an elegant parlor draped in embroidered rugs and tapestries. We sat opposite each other in matching velvet chairs. The boy's uncle regarded me with patient respect, and, taking my cue, I began to speak. I was brief, having long before learned that bad news is best delivered quickly and without adornment. Shortly, I finished describing the vandalism of his nephew's grave and offered my apologies. For a time, the uncle remained silent, his eyes closed, long fingers twirling the tendrils of his thin beard. I waited as patiently as I could, casting a glance around the room overpopulated with ivory, jade, and porcelain figurines. It was a bit too much for my Spartan sensibilities, I tried to imagine what it would be like to live in a place so cluttered, to wake up every morning surrounded by fragile beauty. 
I wondered if the privilege of gazing into those dark eyes unveiled was worth giving up a life of clean, pure order. I fixed my gaze on a small lacquered bowl sitting beneath the uncle's chair. It appeared to hold half a dozen or so common hen's eggs. Shifting in my seat, my heels nudged something at my feet, something soft that hissed and flickered forward across the rug to leap up into the uncle's lap. Baleful, hateful eyes stared back at me. The uncle chuckled. I'm sorry for the rudeness of little Jinky, he said, his hand stroking the sleek bundle nestled in his lap. He has never learned his manners, and I fear I indulge him far beyond what is good for him. The creature raised its head and volleyed shrill little curses at me for a moment. I lowered my feet back to the floor, thankful that I had not compounded my shame by jumping up on the chair. These things you tell me of, the uncle continued, his eyes closing once more. While they distress me, they do not concern me. As I see it, your duty was tested and found remiss, and so the damage must now be by your duty mended. I agreed stinging a little at his honesty. I assured him that I was more than willing to do whatever he instructed me. He drew a breath into his lungs with the care of one who knows the limits of their life too well, his eyes still closed. I had the impression that I might have interrupted him. I resolved to be more courteous, reminding myself that even the rhetorical shapes with which these people built their conversations might be very different from my own. After a careful moment, he continued, remarking that it was good I was so willing to oblige their wishes. In our country, he told me, when such a thing occurs, it is the custom to leave the grave open and exposed so that any evil or impurity which might have been trapped within can escape once more. Open and exposed? I could not help but ask the question, incredulous. The bright-eyed animal chittered, scolding me for my outburst. It slittered off its master's lap and scampered beneath the chair. The boy's uncle opened his eyes, gazing at me patiently. It is our custom and our wish, he said firmly. I did not want to argue, but I was confused by the remedy he had prescribed. Surely leaving the grave open would only serve to contaminate it further? After a long, disapproving moment, he said, I assure you of our custom, something of which you admit to know little, if anything. I nodded at the curt tone in his voice. In these situations, the grave must be left open. That is the wish of the family. Your function is to fulfill that wish, is it not? I agreed that this was the case. Then please do so, and without hesitation. Reopen the grave, expose the casket for an evening, so that whatever evil might be resting there can finally be released. He sighed for a moment, closing his eyes once more. And then... At dawn, seal the casket tightly and refill the grave so that the evil cannot return. 
He opened his eyes, staring directly into my own. Those are the wishes of the family. This is the custom of our land. He was interrupted by a sharp sound from beneath his seat. I lowered my gaze to see the little weasel-like creature skulking there with an egg clutched between his paws, chipping away at the shell, sucking it dry. The uncle rose and I followed suit, the small, feral eyes below his chair following me as he led me from the room. At the front door, he stopped with his hand on the knob. Please, I believe he approaches the ninth regret. Only you can prevent this. And with that, he ushered me out and closed the door, leaving me to wonder what it was he had meant by that odd turn of phrase. Chalking it up to the capriciousness of language, I passed down the path through the gardens, patting the stone demon as I passed. The dried fruit rattled on the gate behind me, and I headed for home. listening to part one of Matters of Mortology by T.M. Camp, written and read by the author, with music composed by Devin Anderson. To find out more about the author or to download additional chapters, visit www.tmcamp.com. Over the years, I and my predecessors have worn a bare path through the tall grass, each son tracing daily over his father's steps, performing the same tasks, fulfilling the same responsibility. <coughs> <coughs> well, choking on the same words. <coughs>